0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. What's up, guys? How's everybody doing? It is good to be home. Um, For those of you that didn't know, I had an incredible privilege of being asked by Acts 29, our church network, to be one of the people representing the U.S. West at a conference in Manchester, England. So I got to spend some time with my wife in England. She'd never been there before, so it was cool taking her around London and seeing all the stuff. And then we uh, got to study um, pastoral leadership and um, and how to work towards longevity and ministry in spite of the different uh, difficulties, temptations, all that, to study it with with guys from all over Europe. It was a really cool opportunity. I had guys in my small group. We'd have small groups after each session, and I had guys from Ireland, Scotland, uh, Belgium. Um, what's the place next to Spain? Portugal. You know, uh, it, it was just an incredible opportunity to hear um, what what guys are dealing with all over the world. And it was really encouraging in one sense because you start realizing, like, oh, they have the same problems as us. We're not as messed up as I thought. Like, that was helpful. Um, and it was just encouraging um, to be able to learn from some of these guys. It's a different perspective, but it's the same experience. You know, Jesus didn't, didn't say, in this world you will have trouble. It'll look like this in Belgium. It'll look like this in France. One day they'll be in America, and it'll look like this there. Like, it, it's, it's not the case. The Christian experience is uh, not unique um, to just American suffering, for example. Um, and what they deal with over there is significant, as the news today has shown. Um, today was a good day. not be in London. We were on that lawn right there in Parliament um, several times in the last week, several times. It's kind of the center of everything that you do in London. And so even when you're taking the underground and taking trains from one place to the other, that's probably the most common train station that we got in on. And that bridge we walked across more than once. Um, And today, as you guys know, um, there was another... uh, attack! At last, I saw they're labeling it a terrorist attack. I don't, I don't know what's developed in the last couple hours, but um, um, some people dead and um, a lot of tragedy there. So, um, what I'd like to do, um, just because I had such a great time there, and my heart is for the people of England in in such a way, the way that they cared for us and loved on us while we were there. Um, it really is. If you've never visited there. Um, it's one of the places you can go to that they actually love Americans, which is awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? They really do. They really do. They'd be Germans if it wasn't for us, right? So um, they do love us over there. But um, but my heart's broken for those guys. So um, I'm going to open up in prayer. It's kind of fitting that we're in the book of Lamentations on a lot of different levels. Um, things that have happened to both you know there, our country, people in our church, and recently all, all sorts of things. Um, So we're going to be studying the book of Lamentations today, but I'd like to start by just opening up in a word of prayer, and uh, we just want to pray for the people of England as they go through this as well. So Father, we just come before you and we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you, God, for the gift that it is, and it is a gift to be able to bow our heads and come before the sovereign king of heaven and earth, Lord, to be able to come before the one who holds all things in his hand. And to just ask that you would be with us, to call your attention to tragedy, to ask that you would move and comfort, that your justice would be made known, Lord, all things um, readily evident even in this book that we're here to study tonight. So Father, first we just pray that you would be with the people of England and whatever whatever nationalities are represented by what happened today. I, I just pray, God, that you would use this affliction to draw people's attention to you. In so many places, God, in Europe, your word is just not seen. It's not even considered. And I just pray that somehow through tragedy, you would save souls. So, Father, may people turn to you. May they find comfort in you. Um, may pastors and churches be able to use what Satan meant for evil, um, and you working through them bring good from it. And, and I pray, God, that you would use this all over the world, Father. Pray specifically for the families of those that are hurting, God. May you just be present as well for them. And God, tonight, we just come before you ourselves, Lord, and and just ask that you would be present with us, that you would teach us, that you would show us how to navigate a really difficult, even dark passage, and that we might see the light that you are, that we might see the hope that you've given us, that we might grow in understanding of you and your word, but not just for knowledge's sake. Because, Lord, there's going to be difficult times that come for all of us. You promised that, just like difficulty came today. And so I pray, God, that you would use this time in your word tonight to solidify the faith of people in this room or that may listen down the road, that, God, we would find ourselves so firmly planted on you that no storm can knock us over. That we would build our house upon the rock that is you, Jesus Christ. And that we would remember, again, that you are our hope. You are our inheritance. You are our redeemer. We don't live for pleasure or comfort or peace or prosperity. We live for you, Jesus. And may we stay on that foundation, come what may. Until the day when these such afflictions are removed from us. Until the day that we can stand before you and in your kingdom. When sin and death and pain has no more stronghold anywhere in your creation. Until that day, God, may we stand on that foundation. And and Lord, I would be amiss if I didn't ask, Lord. May you keep us on that foundation. May it not depend on our own strength and our own effort and our own will. But God, we, we lean on you and pray that you would uphold us with your mighty right hand. And so, Father, as we open your word, your word tells us, Lord, that that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So, Lord, as we open the word of God, may you build our faith and may you uphold and keep your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So today we are in the book of Lamentations. If you would turn to the book of Lamentations, um, I I really love this book, which is a little bit um, demented to say. In one sense, um, the first ever, let me say, big, if you will, teaching or the first time that I ever taught the Bible in front of a large group of people, it was kind of a last second teaching assigned to me by Peter John Corson to teach at Applegate Christian Fellowship. And I just happened to be in my own devotional life. I was in Lamentations at the time. And um, I, writer's block hit me immediately. Like, I don't, I don't know what to teach. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've never done this before. I've never taught more than just a small group of people. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I ended up just teaching from the book of Lamentations because that's um, where I was. That's the good news. The bad news is is I would have taught it completely differently if I understood the Bible the way I do now. But that's a whole other thing that you don't need to worry about, right? So um, we're going to be in the book of Lamentations. Again, this series that we're doing is just kind of a a walk through the books of the Old Testament. And the goal here is not that we would necessarily teach you everything that's in a book like Lamentations. Oh, by the way, good to see you guys. Welcome home. And you too. We'll get to that later. But um, it's really good... uh, um, the the, the goal here is not to teach you everything that's in the book. The goal here is to give you guys the tools, maybe the lenses through which to read and study and learn these things on your own. And my hope is, is that the stuff we're going to look at tonight will help you be able to read this even this week. Um, and, And I don't know how often we say this, but like I would encourage you when we do these things, like spend some time that week, this week, reading these particular books. Don't miss out on that. Take the lenses, then go back and study and read and and consider some of these things from yourself and see what the Lord may speak to you, what the Lord may show you in this and Lamentations um, on its own can be a really difficult book to kind of read through. If you're the devotion person that wants to like read the Psalms and you're looking for those warm, fuzzy cup of coffee, sunlight coming through the window, you know that, oh, this is going to be just warm and I'm going to be so encouraged today. Um, That's in Lamentations, but it's hard to find, especially amidst verses like, my bones are being ground by the stones, and uh, women are eating their children, and things like that. Okay, it's in there, and we'll see it, just kind of harder to find. So, hopefully, that you'll be able to uh, get some of the tools from this. And so, I want to start out by Lamentations by kind of revisiting just for a moment. Um, the last book that I taught when we were going through this series here, the last time that I taught here was the book of Job. Just out of curiosity, were you here when we looked at the book of Job? Four people. No, there's more. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so the, in the book of Job, we we looked at specifically kind of the question of human suffering um, and trying to get a biblical perspective on suffering. You guys remember that? One or two nods, okay? Um, and really the idea that we talked about is not so much an answer for suffering, like why? Necessarily? I mean, Job never got an answer to that question. Um, But the idea that we need to actually expect that suffering exists is part of the normal human experience in a broken world. And sometimes we can even use our faith. Um, as a way of trying to push away that reality, even when Jesus promised us that was going to be part of our experience. And so um, we looked at, if you remember, we looked at Job's advisors, his friends that come in to speak into his life, because he goes through this unspeakable tragedy, um, seemingly for no reason whatsoever, and they come in with all these things, and primarily what they come in to say is, um, you're doing this because you sinned. That's really the gist of what most of their arguments are. Job, you have sinned. You've made God angry. You need to repent. You need to get on your knees. You're being punished by an almighty God for your sins or abuses or neglect of his word. And that tends to be kind of what it is. And, and the book, actually, the way it's written, tells us that that can't possibly be true, right? I mean, God's speaking about the righteousness of Job and, and what a godly man is. And, and so we can have this, this perspective, and a lot of people in modern-day Christianity do, where we go, um, God exists to bless us. And so if we are walking in God's will, if we have faith in God, if we are holding up our end of the bargain on these sorts of things, then we're going to be blessed. We're going to be taken care of. And the tragedies that come, man, that's faith issues, that's maybe sin issues, maybe it's punishment, maybe you're just not walking in the blessing. I've heard the phrase before, be under the spot where the, what has that thing, the fount where the blessings pour out. And if you're not being blessed, then you've stepped away from what God had for you and you need to kind of come back in. The book of Job pushes hard against that. And in fact, when his advisors are coming in and they're all like, look, you're sinning. You need to understand that. It shows us the reality that that's not true, because we know from the beginning of the book of Job that he was a righteous man. In fact, and this should be such a flag for us with regards to elements of Christianity that want to preach that sort of prosperity nonsense, because Satan himself says to God, Well, the the only reason that Job's such an awesome guy is because you always take care of him. If he went through some hardship, his faith would be exposed. I mean, Satan himself is espousing the virtues of prosperity theology. That's literally what he's saying. So, So we should know right away that that's not the gospel. So when we looked at this idea of suffering, we talked about the expectations of it. We talked about all those kind of things. One thing we did not spend time on, and as I was thinking about it today, I don't know that we've ever spent a whole lot of time on it, which is is my fault. Um, it, that's, that's a failure of leadership on my end. But, okay, so if we should expect suffering, if we should know it's part of the Christian experience, that, that the gospel doesn't prevent suffering, if we know all these things, that's great, Jeff. What do we do while we're suffering? We haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about that. How do we navigate it once it's here? Okay, I expect it. I'm not going to doubt God's faith. I know it's coming, but what do I do when suffering gets here? And the book of Lamentations kind of goes through this and helps us understand because the reality is this. We can know Job all we want. We can despise prosperity theology all we want. We can expect suffering all we want. We can know all of those things, but it doesn't change the pain and the questions that hit us when suffering gets there, right? Right? Like If we're to be really honest about it, you can be as prepared for this as you want to be, but when it punches you in the face, Mike Tyson used to have a phrase when people would talk about the, the, um, the, the pl- their plan against him, well, I'm just going to do this, and I'm just going to do this, I'm just going to do this. And they asked Mike Tyson, what do you hear about this? And his response, it was a famous response, he said, um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that was kind of his thing. Yeah, when I hit him, we'll see what his plan does. And that's just true. Like we can expect and understand and have a solid theology of suffering. But when suffering punches you in the face, how do you navigate that? I think Lamentations can teach us some things about that. And the answer to some of these things are not exactly what you might think. So Lamentations, the word lament means literally it is an ex- a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And the Bible has many laments. Some of you write it down. I love it. A passionate expression or grief of grief or sorrow. Emphasis on passion, emphasis on grief and sorrow. Like it's, it's part of it, it's not just a stating of it, there is passion and emotion involved in a lament. And the Bible has many laments. There's several of them. Um, there's laments throughout the book of Job. There's laments here. There's stories of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Um, Psalm 10, Psalm 63, Psalm 69, Psalm 74, Psalm 79. All of these are laments. So Lamentations is not the only laments in the Bible. It's a, actually a common style of literature that we find in the scriptures. And the purpose of these laments is... It's almost and this is going to sound bad, but I want you to track with me on this It's almost a form of protest of what's going on. And that protest can sometimes seem, or actually literally be, at least in its early ongoing, a protest against God. It's meant to draw attention to a wrongdoing that's taking place. So when this lament goes forth, in many cases, like many times here in the book of Lamentations, the idea is trying to call God's attention to this as if to say, are are you not seeing this? Do you understand what's happening? Are you considering this? Are, Are you here at all? And it's designed to draw God's attention to the pain and the difficulty and the suffering that takes place on here. Sometimes it even questions God. What are you doing? Where are you? And here's the thing that might be comforting, especially for those of you that have either ever been through a difficult time or maybe are currently going through a difficult time. Here's the thing. None of that is frowned upon. Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere in this text, are these laments frowned upon as... Yeah, that's not a very good Christian right there. Christians don't ask questions. Christians don't worry. Christians don't fear. Christians don't go, God, where were you? None of that is frowned upon. It's almost encouraged. It's almost as a roadmap for how we can navigate suffering on our own. And so Lamentations is a collection of lament. Let me just say one more time, what I just said, you guys do know that, right? Because, like, we can say that, but there's a cheesy brand of Christianity that makes us think or that tells people, like, you know what? The people of faith, the real people of faith are the ones that when hardship comes, they can keep smiling the entire time. That's not true. It's not true. The Bible holds David up as a man after God's own heart. He wrote laments just like this. So I, I just want you to understand something. Grief Even certain forms of anger, not selfish anger that wants our way, but but the kind of anger against injustice or oppression or crimes, those are God-given emotions. And so to express sorrow or grief or those sorts of things when difficulties come is not a failure to walk in your faith. That's a freeing thing if you'll grab that. It really is. But we could We'll move on from there. So the book of Lamentations is this. It's a collection of laments, five of them to be exact. So you have five chapters in the book of Lamentations. Each of them is an individually written lament. So it's a collection, hence the name, of Lamentations. This is what it is. So what is it that's being lamented? So this book was written by an eyewitness um, who has lived through, survived, and has seen up close um, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, now, if, you, if you've not been along around heritage very long, you, you don't know this. But if you have, you certainly do. Um, we are strong on context. We um, use an actual approach to understanding and interpreting Scripture that's called the historical grammatical approach to Scripture. And the idea is this. These were real stories or real accounts or real laments or whatever the case may be that we're studying written in a real time by real people in real situations it's these aren't fables it's true and so because they were written by real people in real situations, we want to do the best that we can to understand what's actually happening in these situations, and then draw our understanding and meaning and interpretation of the text from that. So we want to start with the reality of what the scriptures are actually saying, and then we want to bring our interpretation from that, not trying to turn something into a fable moral poem or anything like that. Does that make sense? And so because of that, context in any text that we approach becomes really, really important. What's going on at the time that this happens. And in this particular case, um, it's really important that you understand understand the context because again, lamentations are emotional. Like they're really emotional. In fact, these lamentations here are not just random accounts, they're poems, each of them. Individually crafted and purposefully crafted with incredible emotion behind them. The purpose of the author when he writes these things is that it it grabs something in your heart. Like these descriptions are hard and difficult and painful. Some of the things that are actually happening in this particular account are gut-wrenching and straight up disgusting at certain times. And they're done for a purpose that the author wants us to somewhat empathize. You know what I mean by empathize? To kind of enter in a little bit to what's actually going on um, and be able to understand and relate what's there. He's even saying these things in such a way as if he wants God to understand the level of suffering. And pain and hardship that they 're going through, so these are very emotional letters, and so with that being the case, I, I want us to understand the reality of what 's going on because again, we go, okay yeah israel they they sinned against God, and they got carried off to captivity by the Babylonians, and Babylonians destroyed jerusalem it 's way darker than you think it 's way darker than you think. I, I have an example of um, of a very uh, Similar siege, if you will. This is a siege that took place um, over the city of Rome. And I want you to hear the account, some of the things that happened. Because then as we go through and we're talking some of the, in, about Lamentations, everything you see here in this particular account is the same exact kind of thing that's happening in Lamentations. And so Lamentations is going to try to do through a more poetic form what this particular account is doing over the siege that took place over the city of Rome. So listen, it says this. Food is rationed, then the rations are reduced, and reduced again, and reduced again. Old people begin to starve to death, children waste away, corpses rotting on the streets, the stench spreads through the entire city, pestilence is everywhere, people are scared to leave their homes to look for food lest they be robbed or even killed. So what am I referring to? This is not some apocalyptic scenario of end times. I'm referring to something that has already happened. In September AD 408, the goth king Alaric, if I'm pronouncing that right, seized control of the port of Ostia, thus cutting the city of Rome's supply line. And then he besieged Rome himself. For the first time in almost a thousand years, enemy troops stood at the gates of Rome. The siege wore on for months. Finally... After the suffering that I've described, two Roman officials were chosen to exit the city and approach Alaric and open negotiations. Initially, they tried to threaten him, telling him that if he and his army didn't depart, then the Romans would be forced to come out of the city and destroy them. But he laughed. And so the Roman negotiators next tried asking him what his price was. How much do you want to lift the the siege? His answer, according to historians, deliver to me all of the gold that your city contains. All of the silver, all of the movable property that I may find there, and all of your slaves of barbarian origin. And the Roman ambassadors were shocked. And they said, if you take all of those things, what exactly are you leaving our citizens? His response, your souls. After two more years and three more sieges... Each one was negotiated to some seemingly peaceful conclusion. Alaric, on the night of August 24th, 410, finally led his troops to the task even he had been reluctant to pursue, the sacking and burning of Rome. The Goth army broke through the Silurian Gate and poured into the city, and once inside, the 100,000-strong army turned into a large, ravenous animal, feeding upon the the city's civilian population. And then after a week of violence, they departed and the city was ruined. This is a true account of what happened when Rome was invaded. This is the same thing that happens here. The actual siege on the city of Jerusalem was not an instant event. They were surrounded for a year and a half. They were cut off and starved for a year and a half. And so the same thing would happen. Starvation would kick in. Rations were being appropriated throughout the places, trying to stretch the supplies as much as they can. Rations would get Dropped and dropped and dropped. And then the next thing you know, the old and the weak are dying. Babies aren't able to live anymore. Um, Babies would be literally murdered because you couldn't have another starving mouth, another uh, hungry mouth in the city. And then we see the disturbing account that actually takes place in the book of Lamentations where women are literally eating their dying children, desperate to survive. Like this is as dark as it possibly can get. And Jeremiah, who some believe is the author of this, um, because there's a text or a passage in uh, Chronicles that says that Jeremiah had collected lamentations or uh, had a collection of laments. And so some people believe they're talking about the book of lamentations. Um, Jeremiah had warned in the book of Jeremiah, had warned them that this was coming. He had warned them that difficulty was coming because Israel had been in covenant with God. Israel had entered into a covenant agreement with God centuries previously. And in that covenant, there were ratified positions between both parties that said, I will do this and you will do this. It's a bilateral covenant um, that Israel had entered into with God. And God had warned them, if you are unfaithful to me, if if you fail to uphold your covenant, if you sin against me, then this is the difficulty and the judgment that's going to come. And God had warned them, and Israel had been in violation of this covenant for centuries. It's not just a one-time thing. For centuries, Israel's been in violation of this covenant. They've worshipped other gods, acts of injustice, oppressing the poor, and overall failing in every possible way um, to fulfill their part of being the prophet of God. And so Jeremiah had been warning them of this, And they did not repent. They did not change direction. And so in 588 B.C., the Babylonians come... And they besiege the city of Jerusalem. So they, they come outside, they circle the gates, they cut off the supply lines. And this is a really common tactic, in, um, um, especially in Eastern cultures and stuff back in that day. Um, when you're invading a, a walled city, it's a really difficult thing to invade a walled city, despite what all the Lord of the Rings movies and all that kind of stuff would teach us. They don't all have big dragons with battering rams to bust through the gates. You know what I mean? So um, one of the things they would do is they would just say, okay, we're going to have a long game. And we'll come surround the city, cut off the supply lines, starve you out. Anyone that comes out the gate will kill. And at a certain point, we'll be able to bust through the gates and we're just going to, you know, everybody's going to be starved, depleted. It would be a cakewalk after this. And so this is literally what happens. This is what precedes their being carried off into Babylonian captivity. It's as dark as you can possibly come. And the the events are disturbing. Like, look, for example, in chapter 2, look at verse 9. Lamentations chapter two verse nine, and it, it, this chapter is going to speak of Jerusalem as a woman. It's going to personify the city and what's happening there through the character of a woman. In verse nine, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Think about that. Our kings are gone. Our leadership is worthless. We have no one in authority who's supposed to take care of us, protecting us. We have no one that can do anything. And then even our prophets, even on a spiritual level, there's no separation of church and state there. Even in that particular case, like our prophets who are national leaders who hear from God, we're God's people. And they're hearing nothing from God. They feel completely abandoned and helpless. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust on their heads, put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. This is speaking of starvation. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And they cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine as they faint like a wounded man on the streets of the city and as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom? Just think about that. He's painting this picture of something he's actually seeing. These women holding babies that are begging for food and there is nothing that they can give them. And this baby literally pouring out its life as it lays on this mother's lap in the middle of a city street, nothing she can do, Nowhere she can go, no possible help. There's, just imagine how desperate you would feel watching your child die like this. This is what's happening throughout the city. And then verse 19, same chapter. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom you have dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering them without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived, and those whom I held raised, my enemy destroyed. So I hope you have some understanding here of the darkness of this text. It's way worse than we tend to just think initially. It is incredibly devastating and dark situation that's going on here. And Lamentations is an eyewitness account written through poetry. So here's what I mean with the poetry that's here. Chapters 1 through 4 are referred to as acrostic poems. Um, It means that... Each verse, there's 22 verses in each chapter, and each verse gives uh, or begins. If you were to read it in its original language, each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it'd be like for our alphabet, it would be starts with A. Verse starts with A. B. Next verse starts with B. And there's 22 of them because there's 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, So they go in that order, which is interesting. So think about it. There's all this chaos going on. There's all this devastation, and then this guy's he's giving this lament of what's going on. But there's there's a certain order to it. There's a certain pattern to it. And so chapter 1, there's 22. Chapter 2, there's another 22, and it starts over with the alphabet. I mean, A, B, but you know, whatever the Hebrew letters are. I haven't taken Hebrew yet. All that kind of stuff. Um, Chapter 3 is a little bit different. Instead of having 22 verses, it has 66 because it's a triple across it. What it means is um, the first three verses begin with A. The next three verses begin with B. The next three verses begin with C. And the the purpose for that is in Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, the climax or the pinnacle of the poem is in the middle not at the end, the way that we do. And so you have this middle chapter here where everything is then emphasized by almost a threefold emphasis, if you will, on everything that's there. And as you'll see when we get into it, there's a reason that's the pinnacle, that's the, um, the hope, if you will, of that. And then chapter four goes back to the single acrostic, so it's A, B, C. And then chapter five breaks the mold on all that. Chapter five, it's almost as if there's no more order and chaos. There's no more hope in any of this. It's just almost this gushing, desperate plea to God. So that's the format of what goes through. And what I want to do is just give you a really quick rundown on what each of those have. And then I'm going to close out with why in the world do we want to spend any time whatsoever reading such dark and depressing things as what's in it? Why would we start our day with lamentations? Um, so that's what we're going to do. So chapter 1. In Lamentations chapter one, if you were to give a, a title to it or a, um, a summary to it, um, I would say that is the grief and shame of Lady Zion. So again, Israel in this text is per- portrayed as a grieving widow. And the idea here is this, this woman has lost her beloved husband, her, her husband that she loved, who cared for her, who took care of her, um, who was her security, her provision um, has now died. And so he's comparing what's going on in the city to the death of a loved one, which is not a stretch because people are losing loved ones left and right all over the place in the book. So it's this personification as if Jerusalem is this woman, this widow on the streets, and that she is completely left alone and no one comes to help her. There is nowhere she can go. Verse 1, oh, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who is a princess among provinces, has become a slave. And she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. So there's this picture of just a devastating funeral-like loss, like the pain of a loved one. And, and she's simply calling out in chapter 1, God, just will you just notice me? Can you just, I just want someone to recognize the pain that I'm going through and the loss that I'm experiencing. Chapter 2, you could summarize by calling it maybe the fall of Jerusalem and God's wrath. Um, Now, that's the the word used in the text. Now, I don't want you to think of wrath as this uncontrollable anger that just comes out. Um, The idea of the word wrath here, think justice, God's justice in the same way that we would want our court systems to have a certain seriousness and firmness and, if you will, righteous anger toward sin or injustice or crime. Um, that's what we're talking about when we speak about God's wrath. So so it's Israel's fall and God's wrath in this particular case. And Israel, again, remember, has been in rebellion for centuries. For centuries they've been failing and, and uh, um The Bible uses phrases like whoring, as if Israel has been unfaithful to its husband and has gone and it's been worshiping other gods, there's been injustices, there's been all of these things happening, and it's for centuries. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because in Exodus chapter 34, you guys know the story when when Moses is there on Mount Sinai, he presents a specific request to God. He says, God, show me your glory. And he doesn't just mean, I want to see how bright and glowy you are. That's not what that means. When he speaks about glory, he means your essence, who you are, what makes you up. God, I want to see you and who you are so you know the story, Moses is hid in a cleft of the rock. God tells him, like, you can't handle all of me, you just can't, I'm, my glory would consume you, um, but I'm going to give you a peek, if you will, is what God tells him. And so God passes by, and you don't see a description of a bright light, what it does is it's a declaration by God of who he is, what his character and nature is like. And his declaration of who his glory, or in other words, what God is like, he says, Like, that's one of our favorite verses. Oh, man, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, because we need patience for our mess-ups, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. End the Thomas Kincaid painting text right there. (laughs) Right? Because the rest of it's not quite so happy for those of us who are sinners, because then it says, He will by no means clear the guilty, And he will visit the iniquity on the fathers of generation and generation. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Israel has for centuries forsaken God. And God has been really, really patient. He's slow to anger, but it comes. The anger comes. And they were warned through Jeremiah. Wrath is coming. Justice is coming. The sin will be dealt with. Repent, repent, repent. All of the prophets are speaking out throughout the Old Testament. Repent, repent, return to your covenant promises. Return to God. And they refuse to do it. And so after centuries, and I mean, praise God for centuries, but it comes to centuries, and the anger comes. And this lament, interestingly enough, by the way, is fair. It admits the justice of God in this. It speaks about the fact that god's just, he's right in doing what he's doing, and yet begs on god's grace in spite of it. Chapter three is the suffering one. This is the pinnacle of the poem, like I said in Hebrew poetry, and the uh, the triple acrostic shows us this. Um, this chapter interestingly enough is filled with language from other Old Testament texts, passages such as Psalms, Isaiah, Job. It literally quotes the laments of other lamenters and and other things that had already been written throughout the Old Testament. And it's the only place of hope in the entire book, which we'll get to at the end. Since Remember, Hebrew poetry, it all builds to a climax, a pinnacle in the middle, but we're in a different context, so I'm going to push that to the end. So just hang tight. Chapter four is a vivid picture of the siege of Jerusalem. Um, It's a chapter that does these parallels. It'll say, this is what Jerusalem was, and this is what Jerusalem has become. Jerusalem was like this, and now Jerusalem's like this. And so it's showing the devastation of the city by comparing it to its former glory and then showing what it looks like at this particular point. And then the last chapter. Chapter 5, we'll call it just crying out to God. Just crying out to God. Um, again, it's unique. It's as if the order all the way through has finally just broken down. And so he breaks away from this ordered poetry and is just pouring out, begging God for mercy and to understand what's going on. There is no suffering silence in this book, really anywhere in in the scriptures other than maybe the accounts of Jesus. Like there is this understanding and is begging for attention. There's even a list in chapter five of people, specific people who have been affected by this and begging God for to come and just remember them. And again, don't stay so distant that you're just reading some ancient text. This is a guy who's right there in the middle of it. He knows these people. He's watching this stuff happen and he's Pouring his heart out before God in the middle of these tragedies. And then the book ends. I, I, I think you guys have noticed. I hope you guys have noticed. I know Sam and I both have pointed it out at times, um, and Jeremy as well. It it ends on sort of a uh, kind of a point. Like if, if you're looking for the classic American writing style that comes up to a pinnacle and then you have some resolution and it ends all nice and clean, that is not the book of Lamentation. The book of Lamentations literally ends. Unless you have utterly rejected us all and you remain angry with us, exceedingly angry with us. So it's like all this stuff's poured out. Please consider us. Please pay attention to us. Please see our suffering. Please have mercy. And then the whole thing ends with, unless you're just gone. Unless you're just so angry with us that it doesn't even matter. And the book ends. And if you think about it in the timeline of history, I mean, except for when the resolution comes with regards to Nehemiah and with Ezra, there's not a lot of prophetic stuff that's going to be coming from God. Not a lot of prophetic words of hope or anything like that that's going to be coming from God to the people of Israel for hundreds of years until the day of the, new, the days that the New Testament begins. So it's a really dark book. Really dark book. So... Why <laughs> why, Jeff, would you tell me on a rainy season like this where it 's like almost raining every day, praise God for sun today, but like why in the world do I want to start out my day reading this? I, I think that this book teaches us a whole lot of things. I think it, first of all, obviously it shows us that suffering and difficulty are a normal part of the Christian experience, and i 'm not going to spend much time. On that, because I think we handle that in Job, and I think we handle that pretty regularly here at Heritage. That's just gonna be part of Christian life. We're in a fallen world, and in fallen world, fallen things happen. And that's just the reality of it. But what do we do about it? Like when you're going through it, what do you do? And I don't mean like when you're the one on the outside and you see an injustice and in how we approach it. I mean when you're the one that Mike Tyson quote gets punched in the mouth. How do we navigate that? How do we navigate this battle? I think Lamentations shows us some things. Um, And the first one that I want to do, I'm going to point out, I don't even remember how many I have, four things before we bring it home at the end. The first one is this, and I'm going to be, I want to be so careful with this one. So don't just write notes and not listen to what I'm actually saying in the background and then get completely misled because this one's dangerous yet true, okay? The first thing that I think we can learn from the book of Lamentations when we go through suffering and difficulty ourselves, is this. Number one, repent. Repent. The issue going on here is that Israel has sinned against God, and they are going through difficulties that God had told them long ago. If you walk away from me, this is what's going to happen. And he's been calling on them to repent forever ever. And you'll see some of this in the book of Lamentations when you read it. There is a literal call just to repent here. And a lot of times our first response to suffering and difficulty when it comes our way is rarely to humble ourselves, right? When we get hit, we want to hit back. We want to point fingers. Is that our fault? It's their fault. This is why it's going on. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. This isn't fair. Even if it's pointing fingers at God. But the first reaction that we see in the book of Lamentations and really in suffering in many places through the Bible is to actually repent. Think of Psalm 139. David writes this. David's speaking about the the oppression and difficulty of the enemies he's facing in his day. And in Psalm 139, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And then what does he say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in a way of everlasting. With these enemies coming against him, his gut reaction, like any of us would, would be like, they're oppressing your people, I'm your child, and do something. And his anger is, I mean, it's hard to get a little more expressive than that, right? I hate them, I hate them, I hate them with complete and total hatred. And then he stops, and he goes... Search my heart, God. And I think even when he says it, he probably knows his heart right then because it's just what he wrote. See if there be any wicked way in me. Now, here's why you have to be careful with this. What did we say about Job? Job's suffering is not because of his sin, right? And now, Jeff, you're telling us that we should repent when we're going through suffering if there's sin. So here's, here's the part that I want you to really clearly understand, and don't go misquote me later, okay? Understand this. Some suffering we go through is a result of sin. Some is. Sometimes we go through hardships because we've sinned. Think of the story of Jonah. The storm, the fish, all of the uh, tragedy and all the difficulty that he went through and how it even affected people around him. Why? Because he was in open, specific, and determined rebellion against God. He was refusing God. And God allowed him to go through suffering as a response. But here's what I want you to understand. Know this. He's, there's a difference between, I messed up. God's crushing me. If I do good, everything's going to be fine. The idea is this. Sometimes God corrects and disciplines those that he loves. Sometimes... God loves you too much to allow you to live in open rebellion against him. And we just saw what we saw, right, about the character of God. He will not clear the guilty. Sometimes he steps in. And you go, well, that's just all Old Testament stuff, though, Jeff. You're using Old Testament stuff to do all of this. But well, think about Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son that he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so I want you to understand the difference here. I'm not talking about some sort of weird prosperity theology. This is the reason you're doing difficulties because you're not doing exactly everything right. But there is a reality where sometimes... All right, let me rephrase that. I'm not saying every suffering that we go through is a part of punishment of God. I'm not saying the people in England today were struck down dead because those specific people had done something specifically wrong or whatever the case may be. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes it may be. If you're an alcoholic and you're suffering... And you're going through difficulty and your family's going through difficulty and you're blowing money left and right on this idol that's in your life and it controls you and it rules you, it would be a little bit weird to then look at the suffering that's caused by your alcoholism and blame God. It's not that God's... Trying to make you suffer because you're not pleasing him, but the suffering comes along to show that, hey, there's something going on here that's not right. There is an idol that is not leading us towards life. There's an idol that's leading us towards wickedness here. Um, let me use a different one even. If you're just a jerk and you have no friends, whose fault is that? Just be honest. Like I know people. I know someone in particular. They're not here. They live in North Carolina. They'll never hear this. And I know them. And I used to hear so many, "Oh woe is me! Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me." What's the rest of the poem? I guess I'll go eat worms. Something like that. Um, whatever the. Case. And they were just always, and it was always you and, you and you and you and you and you, and always wailing the fact that they didn't have any friends. You know why? Because they were straight up jerk. Just a straight-up jerk. They were rude and selfish, and they created their own situation. And God, in his sovereignty, is just going to allow them to go ahead and go through this so they can understand the ramifications of the way that they're treating other people. It's just part of life. If you're struggling financially because you never give to God and you're using your money as some sort of idol, sometimes God will allow you to go through difficult situations. And the reason that there's suffering involved in all those things is because it hurts when our idols are ripped from our our hands. It hurts when we've built our life around something and we've put all our emphasis on that or whatever the case may be and God needs to rip it from our grasp. Sometimes that's hard and that hurts. So I'm not saying the suffering that you're going through is because of sin, but I'm saying we should always be in a place of humility like David to go, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Have I walked away from you? Am I struggling because I'm walking in darkness when I could have been walking in light the entire time? Maybe that's why I'm dealing with what's going on. I'm not trying to be uncaring and say, man, he just said all my sufferings my fault. It's not what I'm saying, but it could be, could be. Number two, Lamentations teaches us that in suffering, we should recognize the sovereignty of our God. Lamentations 2, verses 1 through 8, look at what it says. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob in his wrath He has broken down the strongholds of Judah. He has brought down the daughters of dishonor. He's cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. All the way through, you can see verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. Verse 8, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying destroying. He caused the rampart and the wall to lament, and they languished forever. You know what he never says in there? The Babylonians did this stuff to us. The Babylonian army is the one who did this. The enemy is the one who did this. He says, God allowed this. God did this. God has a plan going on here. And look what he says in verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. The idea is this God's doing something. This is not random. It may not be fun, especially when we're being disciplined by a sovereign God, but the idea is this there is a constant recognition throughout the book of Lamentations that always points to this idea. Because in suffering, we can start to feel like, and the, lamp, the, the lamenter here many times is doing this. Are you not noticing? Don't you see this? Don't you understand? Where were you, God? And he's coming back to the idea, though difficult as it may in this particular case, the idea is we do not serve some distant God who's not involved in the things that's going on and who once in a while we have to get his attention when stuff gets out of whack. God is present God is active, God is moving, and God's will is always being accomplished. Even in the darkest of days, God is always, always being controlled, always. And that sounds great on the good days, right? But some would go, but how comforting is that when this is what you're going on? But the idea is you go back to the nature and the character of God, understand the situation that's going on there and go... I don't understand everything that's going on here. I don't understand all the difficulty that I'm going through. But I know this. God is in control. God has never left. God has been involved from day one. He is not distant and passive. He is present and active. And I know this when I study the scriptures, when I look back, as chapter 3 is going to show. God is good. He's just, but he's good and he's merciful. That whole description of who God is, he is merciful and loving and compassionate and slow to anger. He is good. So I am putting my faith in a sovereign, all-powerful God who promises his will will be done. And I am trusting in his goodness, no matter how difficult the thing I'm going through in that moment right there may be. And I have to preach that to myself in the middle of that. Because you can have this plan on the front end, but remember Mike Tyson. When you get punched in the mouth, it's hard to remember those things, Right? But God is in control. God is sovereign. And here's why he wants you to know this. You go to the next one. The third thing that we can learn from the book of Lamentations is to cry out to this sovereign God. I mean, that's the awesome thing about it. It's not just that God's sovereign and in control of all things and we just have to sit it out and wait to see how things work. But that he instead is also saying, so talk to me. I'm here. I'm in control. I have a plan. I'm active. I'm not passive. So what are you going through? Tell me. Talk to me. And if it's crying out, if it's fear, if it's doubting, if it's questions, if it's pain, if it's where are you, whatever those things are, he's saying, talk to me. Come to me. Cry out to me. Speak to me. Chapter 5, this one where I told you he goes away from the normal poem form, from the acrostic poem, but this is just a prayer. Chapter 5 is just a prayer, reaching out to God. In verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has fallen upon us. Look and see our disgrace. In verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us our days of old. He is sovereign and in control of all things, and he wants you to talk to him. And I think people get tripped up on the whole, I can't, I can't, talk about the sovereignty of God when bad things happen because that means God's doing bad things or God's responsible or at least God's allowed those things. But he wants you to draw to him in these things. He's sovereign and he's personal and he wants to hear. He cares. And the idea is this. When you go through hard times and you know this, you've been through these things before, the temptation can always be to turn inward. Poor me, look at me, look what I'm going through, this isn't fair, and to turn inward to ourself. And when you do that, that's when angerness, bitterness, envy, all of those things flare up in the middle of that. Man, tragedy and suffering is breeding ground for Satan to lead us into those kind of pastures, right? He doesn't want us to turn inward, he wants us to turn upward. And to just sit, he is the sovereign God who's in control of all things. And to turn to him. You look inside, what's the point of that? Where's your hope going to be? Well, that's in the last one. Number four is this, hope in our sovereign God. I'm going to be late. Hope in our sovereign God. Lamentations 3 is the pinnacle. When things get to their absolute darkest in Lamentations chapter 3, and he's going through, he bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become a laughingstock. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made my teeth grind on gravel. He goes through this. Just impassioned description of all these things that are happening to him. And then there's this turn. And notice where the hope is found. Verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed before me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. And you can see him. He's, he knows it's the sovereign God. He's telling us that God has been the one that's working even through all these difficulties. But then he's trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of God, which is super important to point out. Because when you're going through difficulty, I mean, think of the people here. Where, where else are they going to look for hope? I mean, where is hope in this when babies are dying on the streets? I mean, it's certainly not in their circumstances, Correct. And it's certainly not from within. Their own sin and rebellions, what got them here? And you have this incredible hope in God. But here's the awesome thing about this. The hope is in God's faithfulness. The hope is in God's promises. The very thing they couldn't do, the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel is the thing that they turn to God for and say, but he can But he is faithful. We are not. He is good. We are not. And they're constantly putting their hope and reminding himself. He was even saying, I will remember this. It's like he's preaching the gospel to himself in that very moment when he's going through hard times. This is hard. There's people dying all around me. The smell is even filling my nose as I'm here right now. But I will remember this. And so he turns and puts his hope on God when it's the darkest And you'll hear people say sometimes, yeah, see, Christianity, they get all their people in the hard times. Because Christianity is a crutch. Is Christianity a crutch? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Because our legs are broken. And we have nowhere else to go. And God is the one who promises to uphold us. And so he's saying, come to me. Remember me. Remember me. Put your hope in me. Your hope, no matter how dark the circumstance you're in right now, your hope even then is not in the circumstance getting better. Your hope is in God. Because even if that circumstance gets better, it doesn't mean there's not another one right behind it that's coming. Our hope is always in God, not in the circumstance. Circumstances are turbulent. They come and go. I mean, there's people, I mean, Craig and Stephanie are in this room. You can be setting up for church one minute and in the ER on life support the next, and there's nothing that happens seemingly in between. So our hope's not in circumstances. Our hope is in God, even in the darkest of circumstances. Amen? So let me close with this. Because here's the idea that we always push. Okay? The Bible is not about us. Right? And so if we were to just take this and go, that's the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is a field guide for how you get through suffering yourself. You do the step one, step two, step three, step four. The Bible is about God. And in particular, all of the scriptures is one continuous story. It is the redemptive work of God throughout human history for all of mankind. This is the story of the Bible. The redemptive work of God. It's the gospel. So where's the gospel in Lamentation? We have some hope in there, but if I'm reading the Bible through a gospel lens, where specifically, let me not just say gospel, where specifically do we find Jesus in the book of Lamentations? Where do we find him here? I want you to look at verse chapter three, verse 55. And there's a principle that's introduced to us here, even in the middle of this devastation. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea, Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called upon you, and you said, do not fear. And you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have, what's that word? Redeemed my life. That's an interesting thing to write in there when they don't see the redemption of the city of Jerusalem. There's a gospel application that even the writer of this knows about, who knows God's character and knows what God is doing over the bigger spectrum. He knows what God is up to way beyond, as important as it is and as devastating as it is, there's something even bigger that God's doing throughout all of human history that's not happening just in 587 and 588 B.C. There's this plan of redemption that's going on throughout all time. I cried out to you for help. And what does he say? You have taken up my cause, and you have redeemed my life. And so specifically, Jeff, what does that tell us about Jesus? 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but we being made alive in the Spirit. Here's where you can see Jesus In the book of Lamentations, so that you can read this tomorrow morning and worship God with a joyful heart as you read about teeth being ground and arrows going into kidneys. In Lamentations, a city that was rebellious against God, that that was um, adulterous against God, and that failed to live up to its covenant with God, is being crushed as punishment by God for their sins. But the gospel tells us that Jesus has taken up our cause and that Jesus is then the one who was crushed for our sin when we cry out in faith to God for help. Consider the prophet in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs all. And verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief when his soul made an offering for guilt. So he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's a beautiful picture. Lamentations shows us where we are without God. And yet is urging us to call out to God, to put our faith in God, and to understand that it is God who will take up our cause. It's God who takes up our cause. And so the crushing and the devastation and the horror of sin that's happening in Lamentations is a parallel to the crushing and devastation that we deserve for our sin. And yet Christ has taken up our cause. Christ was crushed for our sin. Christ was beaten and wounded and stabbed and all of those things for our sin. And so when we put our faith in Christ, what is it that we receive? Oh, it's the best part of any study of suffering. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. The sea, by the way, in Israelite poetry is a picture of Chaos. So this same idea, the darkness and fear and chaos going on in Lamentations, when, they, when Israelites talk about the sea in their writings, that's what they're talking about. It was feared. It was unknown. And so the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the destroyed one, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Holy totally should have got an amen somewhere out of that like that's right all the stuff they're dealing with in lamentations god has promised them based on his own faithfulness in the new covenant i'll be your god and i'm gonna take all these things away the devastation the death the poverty the suffering the stench all of those things i'm gonna take them away i'm gonna wipe even the tears from your eyes myself and i will be your god and you will be my people and now look at jerusalem amen let's stand Father, we beg for that day. Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus, the book of Revelation goes on to say. Lord, may you come and end the suffering and despair, the injustices, the pain, the sorrow that we go through. I pray you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Lord, should you tarry in your wisdom, which we, we also celebrate, Lord, because the only reason we know your word tells us the only reason you haven't come yet is because you're still saving people, Lord, and we want to see people saved as well. So, Lord, if it's not your will that you come today or tomorrow or the next, may we, Father, be so planted firmly on you, Jesus. May our eyes be upon you, not the storm. May any punch in the mouth uh, be insufficient to take our gaze away from you, Jesus. May we trust in you, our sovereign God. May we follow you and depend on you and believe in you. May we be aware of you. But God, even through the difficulties that are going on, I pray, God, that that we would always just trust in you, in your goodness, in your character, in your nature, and in your sovereignty and to know that you are bringing all things to completion, that you even promise with us, no matter how difficult things we may go through, whether they be because of our own sin or whether they be because of injustices or whatever, you promise to complete the work that you've started in us, and we're thankful, God. And Lord, we know this. The gospel tells us that if we're depending on our own faithfulness to get there, we're going to fail. So may you hold us, Lord. God, please hold us. Please uphold us. May no man pluck us from your grasp, as your word says. May you strengthen and embolden your people against the difficulties of life, not because we become so tough that we can endure, but because our trust in you is so strong. And may we be quick to everyone in a fallen world, a place where many people need hope. May we be quick to have an answer when they ask us the reason for the hope that's within us. Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So may we stand on you, Jesus, our solid rock. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.